Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Healing Place podcast. So today I have a very special guest with me. And um, I'm going to let you do your introductions yourself. So go for it. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Bill. And um, I live uh, in the southern uh, part of the United States. And I am uh, currently... Uh, I am on disability, uh, and I do have, uh, I have to apologize ahead of time, I'm on an oxygen machine as we speak, so, but uh, <clears throat> I'd like to uh, talk today uh, about uh, some of my experiences with uh, trauma and uh, what it did to me and how uh, I eventually was able to, uh, to overcome it. To, to live a very uh, a very fulfilling life. That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, I, I'm so glad that you're here with me today and um, that you agreed to to join us. Um, so thank you. Oh, it, it's my pleasure. It's absolutely my pleasure. So you had you when we had messaged back and forth with each other. One of the things you had brought up was DID. So explain what DID is. Uh, DID. Uh, is is a very controversial, unfortunately, uh, psychiatric diagnosis. Um, DID stands for Dissociative Identity Disorder, and uh, it is popularly associated with multiple personality uh, disorder. And, of course, uh, that has been, uh, I don't know, dramatized, over, overly dramatized in the uh, popular media by things like the movie Sybil that came out, I think, in the 80s, and uh, it's been used as a vehicle in soap operas. Uh, <laughs> oh, sure, uh, right, yeah. So, and, and, of course, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's always been portrayed as, as a fantastical or evil type of thing, and unfortunately that, that's very far from the truth because the first word is dissociative, not disassociative, but dissociative, and what that is, dissociation, we all experience it. When you're not really thinking about your driving, but you're driving, that's a little bit of dissociation. When you suddenly realize that you've missed your exit and you didn't even see it going by because your mind was, I guess, elsewhere, you were dissociating, and uh, there is a spectrum of dissociation. So it's sure. very, very low of the spectrum. You would have that simple dissociation that everybody does. Right. At the very extreme high end of that spectrum, you would have uh, civil, the multiple personality disorders. Right. And I actually, uh, I feel like I'm somewhere more near the middle or the, the <laughs> I know that it would be very cool of me to say I was up at the very, very high end with Sybil, but I wasn't. Now, that isn't to say that I did not do my share of, uh, I guess, switching would be the best way to put it. 
However, I, I uh, experienced uh, dissociative amnesia. So in other words, I was not aware of when I wasn't quite myself, so to speak. So I would find the evidence of this later, or I would, as they call it, lose time. Okay. And um, that was uh, uh, and uh, continued to be my experience of dissociation. Yes, I um, experienced dissociation myself um, with with the being sexually molested. Um, I always when when I I did EMDR therapy, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and. When we first started going back into my traumas, it was as if I was watching a movie, as if I was standing outside of myself watching these things happen to another, to a little girl. And, right. And eventually, when I started seeing things again through my own eyes, I knew that I had crossed into a threshold, crossed the threshold of healing, because I was no longer dissociating from the trauma, but I was allowing myself to experience it and allowing myself to to go back and process it properly. And so, yeah, I totally, totally, totally understand the whole dissociative part. And it's a it's a coping mechanism. I mean, it's um, oh, yeah. a very renowned coping well, mechanism. But now you you were experiencing what, uh, uh, I, would, I mean, excuse me, uh, you were experiencing uh, a level of co-consciousness. Okay. And this was something... This was actually something when I started therapy for my dissociation, uh, this was what I thought was uh, what I needed to achieve. In other words, I went into therapy with this notion that I want to work with this therapist in order for me to find a way to achieve co-consciousness so that I can live with this, so I can not wake up and find that uh, I had been doing things that I was unaware of. I mean, if, if, if you know, most people, I guess, that haven't experienced this, but I call it drunkard's regret. When you really tied one on the night before, you drank too much, and you wake up the next morning, and you're like, oh, Lord, right. what, what did I say last night? What did I do last night? You right. know, that type of thing. Yes. Well, that was my life. I mean, that was oh. that was me all of a sudden. Uh, in the middle of the afternoon, thinking, wait a second, you know, what's, what's been going on here for the last, you know, few hours, or uh, even more uh, obvious things, because I even, when I first went to an intake therapist, uh, <clears throat> which I ended up not going uh, with that particular uh, bunch of people that were in Indiana, uh, but what I basically told told the guy was, okay, either my house is full of ghosts, or I am doing things and not realizing that I'm doing them. Okay, right. And uh, I had never heard of PID at that point. And that's he said, well, sounds to me like you've got you're experiencing dissociative identity disorder, and that was the first I heard of it, and went from there. Okay. Now, the first times that I noticed this were actually when I was a teenager. And it was a joke in my family <clears throat> because, I shouldn't say a joke, but you know how every family has their lore. Uh, I knew we lived in a haunted house. 
uh, I would, as, as early as uh, 11 years old, um, I would find things uh, in my bedroom uh, that had been changed or had been rearranged on my bed uh, in a circular pattern. And this continued uh, into, uh, we moved two times and eventually to a town 100 miles away. Moved two times in that town. So it was, still, it was you doing it. I would come into it. my bedroom and know that, that no one else had been in there and I would find these items arranged on my bed in a circular fashion, including some items that I had lost months before. Okay. And uh, I, I come to find out that these were actually probably associated with what's known as mandalas. Yes, with right. mandala is a right. circular pattern, and, and Jungian psychology deals with mandalas a lot. A lot. But uh, this continued, and, uh, and then I got into my wild 20s, and I didn't really... I went out on my own and I didn't experience these types of things. When I was 35, I was married on my own home, uh, living uh, in uh, the Cincinnati area, and I experienced the tragedy. As a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting. It was April 25th, oh. uh, which was today's date, yes. 1995, that uh, I lost someone very, very dear to me. Oh, I'm so sorry. And wow. Well, the next five years, uh, I could not deal with the grief. And it triggered, and here I am, middle-aged, going, hitting 40, and all of a sudden, all of this weird stuff started happening, and that's when I went to the intake therapist when I told you about in Indiana. I found out that DID does have a pattern that uh, it, it, it arises from childhood trauma, usually suffered before we're even really speaking as children. Then it does get buried uh, for the most part. And if you experience a uh, severe trauma uh, in your middle age, this can re-trigger these things. And then all of a sudden, your whole little inner family is out of balance and things start uh, really happening and popping and that's what happened to me and that's what happened to me as well it was the bank robberies that oh. happened in my 20s that triggered uh severe panic attacks and um it it took me 25 years to eventually get to um you know therapy and emdr but it was it was that traumatic all of this trauma had happened to me through my childhood, but I compartmentalized it and pushed it away, you know, and had the dissociation with it. And then when, when the robberies happened, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And, um, I, I just kind of reached my snapping point and that's when everything bubbled to the right. surface. So do you mind? Well, you, you just said an interesting word there. You say compartmentalize. And this is, uh, this was what happened and played a big role with me. And, and I, I think this is what, People who are listening to this need to understand. Uh, we had uh, a president named Bill Clinton who at the times was praised or even vilified that he could compartmentalize things. He could be dealing with a terrible scandal and impeachment and still do uh, <laughs> you know, meet heads of state and conduct uh, the office of the presidency 
so this is something that can be employed to one's uh, success uh, if it's employed uh, in a healthy way. Right. And but then if it's a compartmentalization where one part of you is walled off uh, from another part of you because the second part of you, and I, and I apologize for the way I'm describing this, but it's the only way I can think to do it, is actually protecting the other part of you that's walled off because that part of you has been hurt or, or frightened to death or traumatized. Sure, so no, I get the visual. Part of you yeah. kind of steps forward and deals with whatever has to be happening in that moment. And what happens is, is that a lot of it, it's a fragmentation and each little compartment with a lot of people, it will grow and grow and grow. And I've heard of people with DID that, that have just ungodly amounts of what they call alters. I mean, some people think they have, and maybe they do, in the hundreds. But for me, it seemed that there was a compartmentalization that when I was faced with certain situations, another part of me would step forward to deal with that situation and the first part of me would not even know that that had happened. And that's how I experienced what's known as dissociative amnesia. So, and I still, um, I live a very interesting life even to this day uh, because I do have, I guess, what a person would call a uh, a certain level of co-consciousness or wholeness. I think that there has been a lot of healing. But uh, I live I live a life even uh, today where um, I I, uh, I experience little bouts of amnesia. <clears throat> now some of that uh, I I just tell people I chalk it up to some of my medication that I'm on and and, and that's how I kind of blow it by people, but the truth is uh, those are moments in my day when uh, someone, a part of me, uh, uh, has stepped forward and that other part of me is just not even aware. And I perceive it as lost time. Right. Well, and a coping, I mean, it's a coping mechanism. Um, it is. It really is. <clears throat> And it can be, like I said, it can be a a good thing. Um, <clears throat> not that I'm saying that, that experiencing little bouts of amnesia through your day is necessarily a good thing. It terrified me in the beginning. And I'm 50, I'm in my late 50s now. And uh, so we're going back at this point <clears throat> to the year 2000. So 18 years. 18 years ago, this kind of stuff terrified me. And, and it was more pronounced because I, I was in a terrible life situation. I was in a horrible marriage. Uh, <laughs> and just, uh, uh, I was drinking. I was abusing drugs. I was uh, self-medicating, I guess, is, is what some people would, would call it. And I'm sure that a great deal of, of uh, what I was doing was self-medicating. But basically... I was uh, purposely trying to commit slow suicide. Right, right. 
Uh, I mean, that's just the best way to put it. I, I lived a very destructive lifestyle, and I did it on purpose. And, uh, you know, uh, I was one of these people that uh, would tell people, you know, uh, uh, it's better to uh, burn out and fade away and all that right. macho town and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But now, you, um, I... I love your writing. I love I love what you oh, do. Oh, thank um, you. And and so I'm sure, I mean, talk about the how is that a healthy release? And um, you said you're going to share one of your one of your poems with us. Yes, yes, I um, will. Um, well, because I first got to give you a little bit of my ancient history. Yes. And I, I would love for you, uh, I didn't know if you were comfortable enough talking about it. My mother was 18 it. years old when she had me. Okay. And uh, so my parents were very, very young, very, very inexperienced. And you're talking about the very, very early 1960s. And although they were very, very young, very inexperienced and, and everything, um, my father uh, was a college graduate in the medical field and he made very very good money and my mother uh, her biggest aspiration and uh, was to become a housewife which that was perfectly uh, that's what some women chose to do that's all she wanted to be was the housewife that would uh, have the, the, uh, the bridge club over and and uh, you know, right. type of they were they, they were well they were they were comfortable they weren't I wouldn't say wealthy but they were you know and they were in the little southern town that we lived in in the higher echelon of so society so to speak in those little towns and uh, <clears throat> when I was a, a, a toddler I guess two three years old. Uh, they took in a young teenage man, young man, who was having a lot of trouble and living in an orphanage, <clears throat> and the orphanage had turned him over to the police for unspecified reasons. And they took him in, uh, I guess, kind of as a foster child. Okay. And what they didn't know was is that this young man... Uh, was doing some of the most unspeakable things you could think of that a young man could do with a two-year-old kid uh, when they were around. Wow. When they did find out, because eventually I got to talking. So this, this young man was with our family and, and uh, abusing me for uh, on the order of a couple of years. When they found out what was going on, they immediately got rid of him, <laughs> took him back to the police. He ended up, uh, my understanding was he ended up getting drafted and went into the Vietnam War, and I don't know what happened to him after that. Um, and I don't care. Right. I'm sorry to be that way, but I don't. No, I get um, uh, But uh, this, 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 this freaked my mother out. So my father takes her to about 50 miles away, the only place in our geographical 
area that you could find any help back then uh, for somebody who uh, is having a mental health problem. And it was a, uh, a sanitarium. Okay. And her intake person that day, uh, <laughs> this is how, how uh, terrible fate can be, was a young, newly divorced, psychiatrist who had just relocated from the deep south to this place and my mother at the time and I mean she looked exactly like Elizabeth Taylor did and Elizabeth Taylor was doing uh, National Velvet and I mean she was a dead ringer for her. Uh, he had her committed I guess would be the best word to put it into this uh, sanitarium and uh, unfortunately he evidently developed a very unhealthy relationship with her. Wow. And in order to gain continuing access to her and have more and more control of our family, uh, he told her that she needed to bring me in to see him. And uh, he ends up uh, being probably just about as monstrous and as abusive as the boy that they had taken in and to me oh <laughs> he eventually had me put into the sanitary I was a six year old child and he had me on adult doses of poisoning goodness uh, when I was put into the sanitarium uh, electroshock therapy things like this were employed and this was also a man who had probably worked as a consultant for the United States government in learning hypnotic techniques that the Soviets were trying to employ in things like mind control and all of that silly nonsense. Right. And, uh, but he was uh, an expert in the field of, uh, I guess, hypnotizing folks and hypnotizing them not for therapeutic reasons, but for control. Okay. This man controlled my family from the early 60s up until 1976, when I was 16 years old, when finally my father had had enough, and um, there was some intervention there, and some legal things were wrangled and done, and that put an end to it. But uh, Eve was my second abuser. Wow. So were you in there? And, were you? Uh, I mean... He was also my godfather. Wow. Uh, so this is this is what happened to me. Now you spring ahead to the year 2002, and I was uh, uh, going through the, the public health system up there in the Cincinnati area. I was not going to have a male therapist because of all of that. I, I, so I requested a female therapist. And uh, the Lord blessed me with a lady who I think we both know. <laughs> yes. That uh, spent the next eight years uh, helping me deal with all of this and helping me to find ways of getting healthy and living a healthy life 
And one of the ways that we employed was journal writing. I kept a journal. And almost every therapy session began with me reading what I had written in that journal from the previous week. So I, I got in the habit of doing this journal. And then uh, I was, the bad marriage I was in blew up. I ended up having to leave the Cincinnati area and return back to the South uh, where my family could take care of me. By that time, uh, I had started re-abusing drugs, and I was abusing the drugs that they were giving me. I was on Clonopin and Neurontin and a few other little goodies, and uh, I wasn't taking them as I was supposed to take them. I was eating handfuls of them. My tolerance had gotten to the point I could probably eat uh, a half a bottle of uh, one milligram Clonopin. I had a month's prescription in, just in one day. Oh my goodness. And not experienced any. Yeah, it had gotten that bad by the time I got back here. So immediately I started having trouble down here. And down here they got this thing called TDO where the police come and get you and take you for a three day observation. Uh, I ended up being TDO'd about twice a month. <laughs> wow. And uh, what finally broke for me. And I, I didn't really, I didn't have a, a, a good therapist. Was uh, I, I did end up getting a, 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 after a couple of hits and misses a good therapist down here that let me return back to the journal that I was doing. And then uh, through that, I started writing poetry. And I, I was. Uh, I, I, I was just me living in my own place. My family had helped me get back on my feet. I was writing my poetry, and uh, a guy at uh, a local university, a very famous university of the South, uh, English professor, uh, heard about what I was doing and took me under his wing and mentored me. And I'm, I'm happy to say I now have many published books, not only of poetry, but I've started writing uh, history. Uh, local history books and things, and I'm a published author since 2012. Um, I have been completely clean of any drugs or alcohol, and um, I speak and do public reading, and uh, I'm living and loving my life. That's awesome. So, uh, but yeah, I uh, I got one of my poems, so I can get my computer to cooperate. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> And uh, but this is one of my first poems, and this and and, and I guess the, the big thing that I, I thought was maybe obvious, but I, I guess I should say, the poetry helped me uh, in a in a in a very safe way deal with the pain and 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 the things that were inside of me, and to finally get them out in, in, in the sunlight, so to speak, and, and get them healed. Right. So this is one of the early poems, and it's called The Tortured Verses. Okay. Ready. Here we go. Here I am, all that I am, such as I am. I live in boxes of width, breadth, and height, following fate's clues with all of my might, searching endlessly for posterity's directions, working tirelessly to make the connection. 
looking in between lines, uh, meaningful gleaming as my heart pines to discover any real meaning. Is the sum that's greater than its parts really love? Within all that exists, is someone there up above? Life's many components and terrible persistence interfere with notions of planes of higher existence. Beyond empirical reality, it seems there remains a part. Is it an accident of consciousness? Is it love, God, or art? After all, are such thoughts necessary or essential? Is it folly to waste time on things so existential? Perhaps our reach exceeds our hype attempting such endeavors like a machine trying to operate itself, like pulling the right levers. Esoteric pursuits can devour souls like ravenous cancers. Art can drive madness in minds questing for all the answers. But when bereft of love, what we long for can be curses. And that's when we inscribe life's poetry in tortured verses. Wow. And that's it. Beautiful. I teared up at the Thank beginning you. when you talked about the the boxes and in length and width and breadth and I was oh my goodness gracious. I mean it just speaks to my soul. I told you I've been reading some of these um, your poetry in, in the collections volume and um, so powerful, so powerful and again the soul connections um, when you connect with someone's words and um, beautiful. Thank you. Well, and, and you and I, and I guess now your listeners, that first line that you were talking about, I live in boxes of width, breadth, and height. Yes. Everyone else in the world thinks I'm talking about the uh, the homes I've lived in, uh, the mobile home that I lived in when I, I wrote that, and I, and I let them think that, and I encourage that thinking. You and I know, and now your listening audience knows, yes. those are the compartments. Yes. Exactly. That's, that's the compartmentalization. I mean, I have goosebumps down my left arm, and again, my I immediately welled up with tears because I was like, I so instantaneously connected to that to those words, and I oh, I completely got it. Well, thank you. No, very very powerful and beautiful. And did you did you start writing poetry f from the journals, or did I mean was it just a natural progression, or, or had you written poetry before? Well, no. <laughs> Didn't know I could write poetry until 2012, and it's interesting because I told you that I uh, I lost someone in 1995. Right. And uh, we, uh, uh, I, I stayed in contact with his family, and I was speaking with his mother uh, one Saturday in August of 2012. And I told her that I was wanting to, uh, I was wanting to um, be more of a Christian. That I was wanting to do it for real, and that I read the part in the Bible that talks about where love is patient, love is kind, and and all of this sort of stuff. And I was sitting there thinking, how in the world can I be all of these things? I mean, I couldn't even memorize all, all 
all the things that are in that verse in First Corinthians, right. uh, in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, very well known verse. But uh, so I was thinking, is there anybody that I've known that actually lived this way? And I was thinking, well, maybe my dad, you know, but that, you know, that that's not going to work well for an example because he's already an example to me of so many other things. And I looked over and I saw a picture of this uh, young man that uh, passed away back in 1995. And I thought, ah, because he did. He was uh, he was a quadriplegic. He had muscular dystrophy, and that's what ended up uh, finally taking his life when he was uh, 19 years old. Wow. But, uh, so I was telling his mom about this, and she said, oh, would you please write this down and send it to me? So I sat down at my word processor, and I started typing this stuff out, and I thought, well, I'm just repeating what I already told her. How can I make this a little more special? And something and finally said, write a poem. I thought, well, I'll try it. So I wrote a poem, first one I ever wrote, first one I ever had published. And uh, you talking about a tearjerker. <laughs> it really was. Well, my family, who had been at their wit's end with me, by the way, and, you know, uh, I went over to their house. Uh, at that point, uh, I was still, I had had my license suspended for where all this stuff, I had, the legal problems I was having down here in this particular southern state that I live in. And so I was going to their church with them, but my dad would have to come pick me up and then they'd take me to their house. We would have the Sunday dinner that he would drive me back down to where I live down. And I live way down in the outskirts of town. So uh, I didn't have a printer. So uh, I asked Bill if I could print this thing up, and I did. And I showed it to him, and he read it. And uh, when he drove me home that day, he said, I never knew that you were able to do this. And he said, anyone that has a mind that can write something like this, if you ever put any more drugs or alcohol into it, I'll shoot you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I thought, well, wow, you know, maybe I've got something going here. So I sat down and I started writing poetry and all of a sudden, it was like a dam burst inside of me. And I mean, it was ridiculous. I was writing six poems a day at one point and had never been trained in how to do this and was actually writing some of these things in perfect, uh, what they call classic forms or format, using things like iambic pentameter. I didn't know what iambic right. pentameter was, but there I was writing in it. So evidently some part of me knew, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you catch my meaning. Yes. So uh, I've written uh, since 2012, uh, the collected works that you're, that you're speaking of has actually been archived at two major universities and then the World Catalog. Uh, I, I quit counting around five, six hundred poems. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, you made me tear up again because, I mean, it's so beautiful. I I like to say sometimes when I write, I'll get done and I'll go back and read it and I think, well, I didn't write that. Where did that come from? Ah, and I swear, go. I say, I think it's the Holy Spirit speaking through me or something or an angel well, tapping on go. my shoulder. And, you know, I didn't want to go there, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there's been a lot of healing that's been done, but now I would be remiss. There's two things that I need to say. 
number one, you are not going to get anywhere in therapy if you're not willing to go in and try to get results. People, and I'm not putting people down for this, and maybe some people actually need to do this. A lot of people, I think, like to go into therapy to get sympathy, to have someone sympathize, and that's okay. Right. That's totally okay. Uh, but, but they don't approach it with, I am going to work with this person, and and if you've got like a, a prescribing psychiatrist and all this kind of, with these people as my team, and I'm going to do what I need to do with an aim of quote unquote getting better. Well, and I have said and that. Thank just, God. Yes. Uh, the second thing I need to say, and then I'll, I'll that I and I, I want to make sure I get in here. Oh sure. Uh, I found a therapist in 2002, uh, a mutual acquaintance of yours and mine, and I can honestly say, if it were not for her being able to work with me and give myself that, me working with her, but uh, I, I don't know what would have happened. I, I don't think I would even be alive. I mean, so it was that, it made that big of a difference. So I needed to say that. Yes. Thank God for her. <laughs> and I, I feel the same for my therapist because, um, yeah. And, and what's interesting with mine was I was seeing a different therapist and she, my, my trauma was so intense that she said, have you ever thought about EMDR? And I was like, I, I've never even heard of that before. And so I ended up seeing both now, of them. you're going to have to educate me. I, I don't understand what EMDR is. So, I think I do, but could you tell sure. me? Yeah, EMDR, it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it was developed uh, by a Dr. Shapiro um, specifically for soldiers returning from war um, with a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. Um, okay, I have never heard of that before, but it sounds wonderful. Yeah, and so what it is, it's basically I... I revisit my traumas, and so we went back into each one, um, over a hundred sessions, um, and it's it's similar to hypnosis, but but not because I'm completely aware at all times. But I, I go in and out of um, the traumas by following a light bar or holding paddles in my hand that makes make my eyes go right, left, right, left, right, left. So similar to REM sleep. When we process our, our day's events, when we're in REM sleep, you know, we naturally process, which is why sometimes we, we wake up and have dreams and we're like, oh my gosh, I dreamt, you know, the craziest dream, but it's, it's our, our, the way we process what happened that day. Well, with traumas, um, as you've probably learned as well, is that um, a lot of times they were never processed correctly, particularly childhood traumas. Um, and... We didn't. We I didn't have coping mechanisms. I didn't know how to process what was happening to me, uh, so it, it got stuck, and so the trauma was just. And so it was. It was a way to help me release and come in contact. But what you going back to what you said on your first point is how many people I've told you have to go into those dark spaces before you can get yeah. to the light. You have you have to be willing to face it. And you know people who have said to me, I can't do it. And then, then you're going to stay stuck. Um, yeah. And that's just will. the way it is. You will. I mean, uh, as, I mean that, 
remember I said I didn't want to continue with the people in Indiana. They, I would have stayed stuck. And uh, I'll say her name, Melissa, my, my therapist, Melissa. Yeah. She taught me relaxation techniques, uh, breathing techniques that we used, and, and, and things like this. And, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I wasn't uh, a perfectly behaved human being during those eight years. And I think she realizes that because I was kind of a frequent flyer right. <laughs> in some of the psych wars up there in Cincinnati. But uh, uh, she she taught me she taught me mechanisms. She taught me ways of dealing with things, or uh, that uh, I still use to this very day. Oh sure, I do uh, too. Yes. And uh, so really, really changed. Helped to affect the change that. Uh, as now that I'm now reaping the benefits of in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I again I call it my toolbox, uh, you know, and I have filled it there with you go. Yeah, nature hikes and meditation and yoga and breathing techniques and mindfulness training and so yeah, I have this huge toolbox that I filled with all these coping skills that my therapists have taught me or I've researched on my own or I've, you know, learned from wherever. Um, and Oh my gosh, it's, I utilize it every single day. Every single day. Well, now, before I don't know how long you were wanting to do this for, but don't let me go with that one last poem that uh, is a poem that I wrote recently. So in other words, I gave you a poem and uh, talking about, you know, living, expressing life's poetry in tortured verses. Yes. And then I wanted to uh, make sure that uh, I end this interview on a, with a, a poem to show how far things have come in my life. Well, so you... I don't know how long the interview is going to be for. But don't let me get off here without reading well, that poem. Go for it because we're we normally I normally do like a forty-five minute interview and we're at forty-two and a half minutes. So and we can go over. It's fine. But yeah, go ahead. Share share away. <clears throat> All right, Terry. This is called Get Your Wings, and I guess I should confess that uh, part of my life, uh, I was a biker. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm disabled now, and I, I can't do that kind of stuff. I couldn't even hold up a bucket or cycle <laughs> out. I could, but uh, back in the day, I was, uh, uh, I was uh, uh, one of them leather-clad, Harley-riding <laughs> aliens. So, uh, uh, and it was real important, a part of it, kind of a silly thing, but you get your weight. Right. And I got the tattoo of my wings uh, on my left shoulder when you're supposed to have them. And uh, so this is, uh, this poem is called Get Your Wings. Okay. As the mighty oaks from acres are turned before taking flight, wings have to be earned. Faith plays for keeps. It can be a rough game. Here's how to win when you can say the same. I am not all which has happened to me. I am precisely what I choose to be. The years have seasoned me as a good wine. Life didn't go as planned, but that's just fine. I won't let fate choose who I am to be. His choice, not chance, forming my destiny. When hit with fate's cheap shots rather than be sunk, I'll get up, dust myself off, and say, yeah, hit like a punk. Yes, I have earned my wings, and here is why. I have failed more times 
than others dare try. Amazing. Got me goosebumps again. That's awesome. <laughs> oh That's my gosh. To do. I know. I love it. I love it. You made me smile and gave me goosebumps with that one. Fantastic. Well, good. <laughs> you take all this and you, you go and have yourself a good day. And I hope anyone that's listening to this, you take all of this and you go and you be strong. You have yourself a good day. Well, thank you. I am, I am blessed that you joined us on air. And thank you so, so, so very much for, for being here with oh, us today. Thank you. At any time, just let me know. All right. Take care, Phil. You too, Terry. Thanks. Bye-bye.